All right. Well, good morning, everybody. As always, you're listening to the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialty Healthy Podcast. And <clears throat> excuse me. Today we got a fantastic episode. Today we're going to be doing a panel discussion with some subject matter experts talking about needle stick and sharps injury prevention, as well as associated hazards such as bloodborne pathogens and body fluids and other related hazards. So, with that being said, uh, today we got two fantastic guests. Today we got Dr. Amber Mitchell, who you've heard from before on a previous episode, talking about her experiences and, and perspectives on safety. And we've also got Vicente Zuno, who's a biosafety officer with a um, BSL-3 lab in a major city. So short of me talking for them, uh, if I can ask each of you all to give a quick introduction, that'd be awesome. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, we start with you, please. Sure. Thanks, Corey, for having me again. It's a it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. So yeah, I've been working in occupational health specifically related to preventing infectious disease and bloodborne pathogens for a long time um, in a variety of different settings uh, with the federal government at OSHA, um, with several medical device companies, including Becton Dickinson and Johnson & Johnson, uh, for state government here at the UT School of Public Health. And um, currently, I run and a nonprofit organization called the International Safety Center. And we do surveillance for occupational injuries related to sharp needle sticks, uh, blood and body fluid exposures. I also serve as a federal contractor to both the NIEHS worker training program and the uh, and OSHA at the national office. So a varied background and um, really excited to talk about needle sticks today and the important relevance of still of occupational exposures to bloodborne pathogens. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you. We appreciate you being here. Um, Vicente, if you want to give a quick introduction, please. Yes, good morning, everyone. This is Vicente Suno of the Biosafety Officer and Training Coordinator for the Houston Health Department Laboratory. I have been a microbiologist for um, the past 17 years here at the laboratory and a biosafety officer uh, for the past six years. And um, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Corey. And uh, happy to have this conversation with you. Cool. Excellent. We appreciate you being here. All right. So like we said, today we're going to be talking about specifically needle sticks and sharps injuries, which, of course, as we all know, are, you know, hyper relevant in any kind of healthcare or or public health or ambulatory or any type of facility where we're taking care of patients and clients. So we see that in a lot of different ways, you know, everything from direct patient care to uh, environmental services and, and laundry and all kinds of different things there. So the first thing I was going to ask y'all's perspectives on and your experiences is some some of the different ways that you've seen these types of injuries happen with needle stick, sharps injuries, and the associated hazards such as blood and body fluid exposures and, and things of that nature. Um, Dr. Mitchell, we can start with you. What are some of your thoughts? Um, it's actually the perfect timing to have this podcast because we just released our 2020 EpiNet uh, data. And for those that aren't familiar with EpiNet, we've been doing occupational incident surveillance and reporting it publicly since the mid-1990s. It started with uh, Janine Jager at the University of Virginia, and I took over the center about six years ago. 
So we just released our data this week and it's from an aggregate of US hospitals and we're still seeing injuries from suture needles as the primary frequency of injuries that are occurring in healthcare. And second to those are those used for intramuscular and subcutaneous injections. So uh, the use of hypodermic syringes and with the increasing epidemic, I would say, of obesity and increasing diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, the largest frequency of injuries occurring from injection are from insulin syringes. So these are the areas of high concern for us and a lot of focus for targeted prevention programs in healthcare. Definitely. Yeah, that, that's very important information. Um, you know, I was going to ask your thoughts on this, with especially with EbbyNet and, and all the survey data that you get. Uh, I remember in the past, we had a lot of conversations around, like you said, with sutures and things of that nature, a lot of, uh, predominantly in major hospital systems, we were seeing a lot of these injuries and exposures in operating room environments. Have you seen a lot of that? Yeah, I'm looking at our data right now, and actually 43.7% of all injuries are occurring in the operating room and uh, post-anesthesia care units, so recovery. And uh, not only, but 26.3% are happening in patient or exam rooms. So yeah, I would say in 2021, the careful focus for us is going to be continuing to prevent needle stick injuries and sharps injuries, which are solid bore needles, which are a little bit less risky than hollow bore when there is a needle stick. But the highest risk in the operating room is if an injury happens with a suture needle or a scalpel blade inside the operative site of the patient, which means there is an opportunity for potential transmission between patient and worker, worker and patient. So these are extremely high risk a liability issues also for healthcare institutions. Absolutely. Yeah, that goes into that area between the between the employee safety and the patient safety. And then of course you've also got, you know, physicians with with privileges to the facilities and you've got potential contractors, all, all different kinds of things going on there. That's that, that excellent point. And that'll be a great opportunity when we look at the hierarchy of controls in a moment. But um Vicente, how about yourself in the lab environments? What type of what type of hazards have you seen that tend to cause needle sticks and sharps injuries? Well, just like we were discussing a minute ago, um, even though we we have a, a controlled environment here at the laboratory, we don't we don't work with patients. Um, we do uh, have uh, sharps containers, and we discard um, slides, uh, pipette tips sometimes if they're if they're very pointy, and um, especially the smaller ones tend to be uh, um, tend to tend to puncture or break through biohazard bags, so we typically discard those in a sharps container. And of course, uh, some needles. Over the years, we've eliminated or, or substituted uh, the use of needles, but we still use some needles here at the lab. Uh, but by far, the number one uh, cause of injury, I would say, is uh, overfilled sharps containers. Um, in the past, we've also had individuals who are handling waste and and they are loading an autoclave and somebody accidentally discarded 
something, some sharps in the in the, in the biohazard uh, waste, and they when they're loading or unloading the autoclave, they get punctured or they you know they get a needle stick or a sharps injury. So we we started um, using several years ago. We started using puncture resistant gloves, right? But they're not necessarily puncture proof, as we were just ta talking a minute ago. So I would say uh, just handling waste and is is probably the number one cause of injuries, sharps injuries in the laboratory. Yeah, it's great, great input. Yeah, and that's definitely important, you know, with something something as fundamental as as the you know the proper limits on the sharps disposal containers and the placement of those containers and handling of the hazardous waste. Yeah, definitely definitely important information. So with all that, you know, that that gives us a good idea of um, how these things tend to occur. So knowing that. Now we can talk about, of course, the best practices and how to prevent them, which is really the, you know, the nuts and bolts or the, the, the rudiments or the fundamentals of what we do as far as exposure prevention. So we can start with the first one, which is, of course, elimination. Um, Dr. Mitchell, we can start with you. Are there any ways you've seen to eliminate sharp use? Yeah, I have. Um, and let, let's focus back on the OR since so many since that's the most prevalent area based on our 2020, 2020 data, if we look at suture needles and alternate ways to close, let's say the skin or fascia, it might be the use of adhesives or zipper closures or staples. There are a couple of different ways to eliminate the use of a suture needle. Now with staples, staples were still introducing a sharp back but so that does skirt kind of an engineering control and an elimination technique but those are some of the highest ways to do it um, and i would say too it's just assessing whether the use of all needles are necessary so we could let's say eliminate the use of needles introducing a needle into an iv system with needleless iv access devices. And again, we could argue whether that's an engineering control or whether that's elimination. I would say that it's both. So reducing or eliminating needles on IV lines and then eliminating the use of sutures for techniques where you can, meaning skin closure, let's say. Sometimes there's an even better aesthetic effect or um, plastic surgery effect for skin closure using these alternates versus sutures. Excellent. Yeah, it's it's always interesting, you know, with with especially advances in technology and, and new developments that there's always a good way to to start looking at how to eliminate hazards. Very important. And like you said, a lot of those also segue into into substitution. But um, yeah, we'll definitely talk about that in a second. Um, Vicente, have you seen any ways to to eliminate sharps or, or needle use? One example I can think of for elimination is as we move to uh, more molecular techniques of, of identification in the laboratory, uh, we we tend to do less handling of actual patient specimens and cultures, um, um, less manipulation. So so I, I again I I don't know if that's necessarily elimination because you're you're still handling a smaller amount 
typically of specimen, a patient specimen. Um, the, like we don't always have the luxury to eliminate the hazard here in the laboratory because we're working so closely with these uh, specimens and cultures. Um, I, so I, I'm ha having a hard time thinking of an elimination. Um, more on substitution and engineering control, I would say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and sometimes that's half the battle is just, you know, limiting the exposure when it can't be eliminated completely. But, um, yeah, you're, you're definitely, definitely correct is one of the big things, you know, especially with a lot of the operations going on in the last, you know, the last year with the pandemic is, you know, just understanding that in a lot of these situations, we're we're actively knowingly working directly with a hazard, you know, with a live infectious agent. And so it's just a matter of being able to do that, you know, as safely as, as we can, knowing that the risk is there, definitely. So with that. That's, um, Corey, that's exactly what I was going to say, too, that in a clinical laboratory or diagnostic laboratory, it, it's more likely that you're going to be dealing with an infectious agent because that's the whole point of sending a sample off to the lab to be tested. So, you know, the risk sometimes is even higher in a laboratory setting than on the patient floors because, you know, a majority of patients are not going to have a bloodborne or infectious disease. So that's a really important point, I think, about maintaining focus on clinical and diagnostic laboratory safety. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, absolutely. That was really one of the first conversations when the when the pandemic first really started was making sure that everybody across the board, you know, regardless of their their profession or their specific job functions, understood that you know, you've got these different risk areas. If you've got the people that are knowingly actively working with known infectious agents, you've got the people that have to determine, you know, in real time when there's a potential exposure. And then you've got everybody else who has, you know, these these coverall precautions, uh, especially with a you know, such a high exposure risk with COVID-19. So yeah, absolutely. The risk is and, always. Um, one other thing too that you just made me think about is transport. Um, so one other way to eliminate hazards to a broader majority of people is to have a more limited number of people who are responsible for, for doing transport of samples from the patient floors or from the procedure rooms to the lab. So reducing that number of people who are potentially exposed is a way to eliminate hazards for a larger population of people. Mm -hmm. yeah, Although one may argue because we are traditional industrial hygienists sometimes is that is an administrative control. Um, so there are so many different ways that the hierarchy intersects it, its own self because of that. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's the old the old asterisk, you know, that always goes on the hierarchy of controls is, you know, a combination of controls is always most effective. You know, it's a, they, they definitely segue. Um, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, if we can limit the, you know, limit the risk through adjusting job expectations, that's definitely a factor. There's been a lot of that with respiratory protection programs, you know, where particularly if, if somebody isn't able to use a respirator or, you know, if they, if they can't pass a fit test with the respirators that are available at the time, you know, any number of different variables, then the job expectations can be adjusted. So they just don't go into a, into a hot area. So a lot of factors there, but uh, 
Yep. No, um, Vicente, you had said you know, a second ago we, we had started kind of venturing into substitution. So, of course, you know, when things can't be completely eliminated, sometimes we can substitute uh, different different equipment or different um, different procedural variables to make things a little bit safer. What are, what are some ways you've seen that happen? Yeah, so uh, one of the examples that I use during training is uh, how we used to receive um, biopsies, biopsy t- uh, tissue samples uh, at our TV lab. And we used to um, uh, cut up the tissue with a scalpel in a petri dish and elevate a buffer, and then use that to inoculate our growth medium. And uh, that, that was many, many years ago. And now we use tissue grinders. We, so we eliminated the sharps hazard. We, we uh, introduced a tissue grinder, which is entirely made of plastic. It's a conical tube. You introduce the tissue into the conical tube, and that you, uh, uh, you grind it with a cylinder. And then the, there's no sharps. It's a very simple uh, way to eliminate the, the sharps hazard. And it serves the same purpose. So I, I like to use that example. For elimination. I'm sorry, for substitution. Yeah, no, that's great. Definitely always good to find different ways to do things that can can remove some of the hazards for sure. Hey, Dr. Mitchell, how about yourself? Have you seen any kind of substitution? It's, uh, it's difficult, I think, with sharps as an example to think about substitution because as we're mentioning there are so many blurred categories I mean you could say that going from a sharp tip suture to a blunt tip suture is a way to substitute a sharp for a less sharp Um, there are still injuries from blunt tip sutures of course Um, but that example is used as an engineering control in the OSHA bloodborne pathogen standard so um, you know, you typically think about substitution for a chemical hazard, let's say glutaraldehyde compared to hydrogen peroxide, something that's less noxious or less of a sensitizer, which could very well be a really important thing to think about for substitution when we're thinking about all the hazards in central sterile or in, um, in uh, sterile processing because you have exposure to not just processing sharps, but also processing sharps using chemical disinfectants. So that's a really important element, I think, to think about where people are managing sharps and chemicals in central sterile and um, and SPDs. But that that's a, a little bit far-reaching based on your specific question for sharps, though. No, it's great. Just to add on to uh, Dr. Mitchell's point, um, we we uh, looked into the option of autoclaving our sharps containers in-house, um, and it was just uh, less uh, of a risk to to have a a contractor uh, pick up our, our regulated medical waste containers, and that we use specifically for our sharps containers. Right. So, so, so uh, we instead of uh, autoclaving those sharps here, um, I, I did a, a, a test run, and our our, our um, sharps containers 
some of them just melt in the autoclave and 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 when you're discarding that you now have um sterile sharps right um which are still a hazard so we decided to just go with our contractor they incinerate them off site and we we put these sharps containers in a regular regulated medical waste a box and and uh so they're very secure it's like triple packaged and and they incinerate them off site so we we i guess you could say we eliminate the risk to our staff by doing that yeah it's great yeah always good good way to look at the different variables and how to how to mitigate those definitely um yeah and it's interesting you know both of y'all had mentioned this is that kind of fine line between the different controls is you know so if you've got like like i think dr mitchell you had said about the blunt blunt tip devices you know that could be considered a engineering control or a substitution depending on how you look at it same thing we always talk about with with the um like with safe patient handling equipment you know is that you've got the equipment that you know mitigates the weight that goes on the employee as they're as they're helping a patient with mobility but at the same time, it's an administrative control because the employee has to know to go get the equipment and put it in service at the right time. So it, it's definitely a, a boundary or not a excuse me, a, a cross boundary at, at times, which um, which kind of takes us to the next thing, which is the engineering controls. So now we're talking about things like mm -hmm. different devices and different, you know, more mechanical solutions. Um, and Dr. Mitchell, we can start with you. Have you seen any kind of good engineering controls? Yeah, I have. Um, we've and remind me, I have um, I have a comment based on the that transfer of third party and um, biohazard waste. So I want to come back to that to Vicente's point. Um, but for engineering controls, um, yes, we've seen successes in reducing injuries in leaps and bounds over the years with blood collection. Um, so those are traditionally the highest risk because you have a blood-filled hollow bore needle that is being used. So you can't imagine a higher risk of potential transfer of a bloodborne pathogen. Um, but with advances in technology for blood collection, with um, the greater use of wing, uh, wing steel needles and push-button technologies, and um, retractable needles. So that's probably one of the greatest success stories in reducing injuries from blood collection. Also, um, uh, transfer devices are a lot better now for moving the sample from the vein to a tube to the lab. Also, one huge success story, I don't know if you would call this substitution or not, is the movement from glass used for clinical laboratory and diagnostic for tubes and slides to plastic. So that's um, another great success story. Absolutely. I think, for yeah. Whether you consider that right, whether you consider that substitution or engineering. Um, also, I think that for, um, for electrocautery, you know, all these other types of processes or robotics that are used in the operating room that have engineered out greater exposures to the use of mechanical sharps. Also for one area that has reduced over time is 
maybe it's more of a work practice control is the use of neutral zones for passing devices, but that is amplified by safety using retractable sharps or sorry, scalpel blades or scalpel blades that have a sheath that go over them. So, and I mentioned earlier the ways to reduce um, suture injuries for skin closure. So zipper closures, um, staple guns. Those are a couple of examples that I can think of. IV catheters have become a lot better because the the needle that introduces into the vein and then covers with the catheter that goes into the vein or the artery is almost completely enclosed now. So there's been a lot of advances in IV insertion that's resulted in less injuries that we've seen from uh, from IV insertion. Definitely, yeah, it's great information. And, and I like how you put that is that, you know, if we're able to implement, you know, the safest possible devices and then the safest possible procedures within uh, each operation, you know, then it, 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 like you said, it amplifies those controls. So each one is optimized for maximum protection. And that way um, it's, I, I hate to use the word fail safe, but it's, it's closer to fail safe. You know, it, it's, it's in that direction. It, it is. You're right. And and in the industry, I think a lot of medical device manufacturers are trying to move more towards that passive type of technology, which could be more of a fail safe, um, where the user doesn't have to do any active activation of a safety feature. So a good example is, let's say, a lancet that's used to take a finger prick sample. The you know, you depress the plunger or you you put pressure on the skin and the needle pops in and pops out. There's nothing that the user has to do to get the sharp away from or into the barrel of that lancet. So that may be considered a passive device. But with, mm-hmm. let's say, hypodermic syringes where there is a safety feature or a sharps injury prevention feature, a user has to actively activate either a hinge sheath or has to depress the plunger a little bit further to have the needle retract into the barrel of the syringe. So there's something that the user has to actively do. Um, One thing that we've seen is that even though people are using devices that have safety mechanisms or sharps injury prevention mechanisms, they're getting injured before they have the opportunity to activate that safety feature. So I think that also warrants the importance of what OSHA requires, which is that frontline employee evaluation of devices that are commercially available on the market that they may prefer more than what is supplied through materials management. Um, So that's a really important consideration that also results in positive compliance with the OSHA Bloodborne Pathogen Standard. Uh, absolutely. Uh, great, great input. Vicente, how about yourself? Any, any good engineering controls that you could think of? We purchase uh, in, uh, safety sharps containers with needle removers. So um, the few needles that we still do use, uh, we you insert the needle into the 
the lid of the sharps container and you twist it and the needle falls off. So uh, that's an example of an engineer control. So, so uh, you don't have to uh, remove the needle with your hand um, as far as engineer controls with sharps. Uh, that's the only example that I can think of currently used at the lab. And of course, besides the sharps container itself. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Yeah, that's always been one of those things. You know, it's interesting in all of the training materials and, and SOPs and everything, it always says, you know, um, to, you know, do not recap needles. And that's one of those things that even this, this further in, you know, th this far along, you know, into our progress as, as, as safety professionals and as healthcare leaders and, you know, every, everything in between that there's still situations with recapping needles, you know, so to your point there, you know, there are, there are still situations where, you know, uh, people will put, put their hands, you know, dangerously close to a contaminated device. Um, so anyway, we can, we can mitigate that. It's always good. <clears throat> Definitely. So that kind of takes us into the next part, which is the, the administrative controls. So at this point, you know, we talked about the devices themselves with whether we can eliminate the, the sharp or whether we can substitute for a less dangerous sharp. Uh, then, of course, the engineering controls where we're able to put some kind of uh, mechanical device, whether it's a safety feature on the needle, uh, definitely you know, retractable devices, disposable, disposal containers, uh, puncture resistant, all, all different kinds of things there. And so now, of course, the administrative controls are like we were talking about a minute ago, where we're able to to compound the engineering controls. So we have a safe device and we have a safe process. So, um, Dr. Mitchell, we can start with you. What are some different administrative controls that, that you've seen happening? So I I would say that administrative work practice and training for safer work practice is all the same. It's all in that same um, that same element within the hierarchy. So administrative controls, work practice controls, and training. Um, and as you said, Corey, the recapping, I'm looking at our EpiNet data now, we still see a percentage of injuries that are happening from recapping. So avoiding recapping a needle is a terrific way to, as a work practice, um, to reduce those injuries. Also, I would say taking mini timeouts. You mentioned it earlier, um, mini timeouts when a procedure is being done or a needle is being used in a patient or procedure room to saying, you know, hey, everybody, I'm about to use this device or I'm about to use this needle and I'm about to take this sample. I'm about to draw this blood. I'm about to insert this IV. Let's take a moment um, and be aware of what's happening in the environment. I think in healthcare settings specifically, everybody's so hurried. There's so um, mm -hmm. little time to, to manage procedures that the hurry is also what's causing the injuries, which also could be considered a way to administratively reduce injuries. And we don't, we don't even have time to get into staffing and um, overexertion and exhaustion and all the elements that come into play in healthcare facilities during COVID, especially during COVID, or even in a really busy surgical center. So those are a few. Um, the other I would say also, which is, which I just mentioned earlier, could be a function of 
work practice training and administrative controls is um, is safely activating a safety feature. So you don't want somebody who's activating, let's say, if a device you're supposed to activate a hinge sheath, you take this the you you finish the injection and then you activate the safety feature on a tabletop. Um, and then you also then have to reach across the room to put it in a sharps container. This is not an effective, I think, use of a safety device or a design of a patient room or even an exam room where you're just doing a simple procedure like giving an immunization. So all of these, I think, come into play with process. Is the right device in place? Is the safety feature obvious? Does the safety feature decrease a potential injury by activating the safety feature? And then is the sharps container in the right spot to reduce any movement across a room or over a patient? So I think these all come into play as we're thinking about um, controls that are more administrative. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I like how you mentioned, you know, the the importance of something as fundamental as a like a verbal cue, you know, just just letting everybody know I'm using a you know, we have a open sharp, you know, we have a contaminated device. It it always reminds me of, you know, in the military, of course, there's very clearly defined, you know, verbal cues for certain things. So for example, you know, if somebody's if somebody's throwing a hand grenade, you know, you say frag out, which is, you know, fragmentation out so that everybody knows that a grenade is about to blow up. Um, and if they're about to detonate an explosive, you know, fire in the hole. So these things, you know, it's ingrained. So they happen every time there's going to be a hazard. Um, so I've always, I've always been an advocate of that, you know, is clear communication whenever there's a, whenever there's an open hazard. So everybody's aware of it. And that always ties back to in the operating room, for example, you know, something as fundamental as is um, is passing along devices, you know, instead of just blindly handing it off, you know, having the neutral zone, setting up a neutral zone. I'm, I'm setting the device here. You're picking the device up here. OK. And that way everybody's on the same page and it's clear. So that, that's great. Great feedback. Great information. Um, Vicente, how about yourself? Any any process controls? Um, yeah, I, I agree that uh, administrative controls, work practice controls, and training are all uh, part of one um, unit. And so it, it all starts with training. I agree. Um, when I do onboarding for, for our new lab staff, I, I always talk about um, how whenever they're handling sharps, they should, if possible, use you know the one-handed technique, uh, um, try, never pass sharps around. Never pass any needles around. Uh, keeping sharps containers within arm's reach, right? Try not to walk around the, uh, down down the hallway or down the the, the lab with with a sharp uh, in your in your hand. And I know easier said than done. Try not to rush. I know it's, it's difficult, um, but um, that can certainly cause an exposure or or, an, or a needle stick. And uh, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, just reminding staff and, and posting um, um, flyers and, and sending out communications about asking staff not to overfill sharps containers because um, that's that's probably one of the most common uh, culprits that I see around the laboratory. Uh, it's just so easy to to uh, 
remember there's a fill line at about three quarters of the way of sharp containers and, and once you get to that fill line you close that sharp container and get a new one um, and asking staff not to discard sharps in a bio waste bag because they can easily puncture the bag and, and we've had injuries in the past um, and when, Vicente also um, we yes. talked uh, well, we can talk more about this too, Corey, about uh, injuries that happen to non-users, which is really what we're getting into here, is not leaving sharps in linen um, so that there's then an injury in either if laundry is being processed at the facility, which is more rare these days, but transferring mm -hmm. that risk to a third-party laundry that is processing thousands or tens of thousands of pounds of laundry from multiple institutions. So you're really amplifying the risk or transferring that risk hmm. from a healthcare facility to a third party, which is also what we don't want to do. So more, more reason to focus on preventing injuries in the healthcare facility itself so that it's not then inadvertently transferred to a third party processor. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. The, that situation does happen. You know, we're uh, going back to, you know, Vicente's point about about the, you know, the uh, not intentional, of course, but the, you know, the rushing and the high operational tempo. And um, people will sometimes, they'll finish up doing the, doing the task, you know, whether it's drawing blood or, or administering medication or whatnot, and they'll, They'll leave the device, you know, sit sitting there on the patient bed or whatnot, and so it can end up in the sheets or anywhere where it's not supposed to be, and that creates a secondary hazard for sure. But um, yeah, again, with the communication and the defined, the defined placement, whether it's you know a neutral zone or a setting up the clean and clean and contaminated area, just basic contamination control and infection infection prevention procedures can do a lot of good there, definitely. Yeah. And, just, and just to clarify, uh, our sharps containers are closed and they are properly packed in these regulator medical waste boxes and, and, and uh, they are transferred, you know, contained in the sharps container. And um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with, with, uh, with the linen um, being handled by a, a contractor if there's a needle in the linens that's not contained. Uh, you're transferring that risk to somebody else. Um, but um, we just we, we looked into autoclaving our own biohazardous waste containers, and they just they they we we don't have an incinerator in house. So uh, the only option that we have, I guess, we could do chemical decontamination, but that's still handling of the waste of the sharps. And and uh, when we autoclave them, which would be the the the, the decontamination method or the sterilization method that we use, the, the, these just tend to melt and the lids pop off. Um, but if you have any suggestions, I, I would be uh, open to to hearing them. No, no, I think I think I was agreeing with your point, which is third parties, especially companies that are used to dealing with biohazard waste, are experts at jobs like that. I was thinking more of third party laundry, mm -hmm. um, which you know, of course, gets at sharps that are left in linen in patient rooms or in the PACU or in the operating room. So no, I, I think you're absolutely doing the best practice in reducing 
facility-based exposures, um, I was just thinking more so at the bedside where yeah. people are dealing with linen, where you have the exposure um, to environmental services and then to whoever's transferring the linen and then to the third-party laundry facilities, not to mention, um, you know, there's huge risk. And I know, Corey, we're not going to focus on mucocutaneous exposures, but where you're dealing with linen that is hugely contaminated with blood or body fluids, there are all sorts of other issues relative to um, containerizing linen, which is really difficult to do, and then transferring it off to a third-party processor. So there's all sorts of issues. Maybe we could have a podcast in the future on on healthcare laundry, um, not to mention a lot of ergonomic issues, a lot of chemical disinfectant issues, a lot of heat and wet and all sorts of issues related to healthcare laundry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's always a lot of good topics that we can continue with. Um, so as always, you know, it's always an open invitation. We'd, we'd always love to have you both back to continue those conversations for sure. Um, yeah, definitely the, you know, those administrative controls are, are important. So we can not only mitigate the risk to each different, each different organization involved, but then also um, be able to control that risk with, with the different, different procedures. Um, which that kind of takes us to the last thing on here. You know, so at this point, we've got the devices, we've got the device controls, the engineering controls, and then we've got the procedural controls with the administrative controls and the work practices, such as, you know, avoiding rushing and good communication and avoiding fatigue and everything in that realm. And so the last part of this is, of course, for those areas where we can't do anything else, you know, where we, we have to kind of stand face to face with the hazard. So ways that we can at least the hazard off of us, you know, which goes into PPE. So like we, I know we, we each mentioned before, you know, unfortunately there's, there's a lot of puncture resistant gloves, but, uh, you know, puncture proof gloves at this point, but of course there's other hazards such as blood or body fluids or different, different secondary hazards that apply here. So PPE, um, Dr. Mitchell, what do you, what do you think about PPE? Yeah, well, uh, in EPINET, we also capture, we capture not only needle stick and sharp object injuries, but we also capture blood and body fluid splashes and splatters. So for PPE, um, I would say in reducing a blood exposure, so if we're thinking purely about the bloodborne pathogen standard or re reducing splashes and, splashes and splatters, um, we still see splashback from IV insertion, from blood collection, mm -hmm from managing samples in a clinical laboratory, a diagnostic laboratory. So in this case, and especially because of COVID-19, we're seeing more and more face protection. So of those mm -hmm. blood exposures, I'm looking at our EpiNet data right now, um, about just over a third of them still happen to unprotected eyes. So thinking mm -hmm. about increasing the use of face shields and goggles or protective eyewear in a patient setting is ever important, not just for any splashback from the use of a device or um, pouring um, urine or feces into a hopper. These are all splashbacks. But again, you know, I would say it's more important to think about preventing exposure to blood and body fluids, whether you're using a needle or a sharp 
or just doing practices that may result in um, occupational exposure to blood and body fluids. Um, one additional element that's really important in the operating room environment is the is the use of double gloving. And this isn't to be puncture proof or puncture resistant. This is more to reduce the volume of the blood that could possibly be inoculated into the worker. So with two layers of nitrile or latex or whatever it is that you're using, um, the volume of blood that would get potentially into a worker's hand or arm or whatever it is, is less. So the inoculum is potentially less. So that's purely reducing the volume, but it is not a, a prevention control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great input. Yeah, it's it's very important, like you said, you know, that we are able to look at not only just the the, the potential for needle stick or sharps exposure itself, but like you said, you know, the the blood involved and the body fluids involved, and and being able to being able to mitigate all of that holistically, definitely. Vision um, day, how about yourself? Any any PBE thoughts? Uh, yes, uh, I'm very interesting uh, here about the double gloves. I, I, I will take note of that. I think that's something we could definitely do uh, when we're handling our waste here. Uh, we, ha we have we autoclave our own waste and, and uh, definitely our staff is uh, trained uh, to use eye protection. Uh, obviously a lab coat and disposable gloves, but also puncture resistant gloves. And, and when they're handling the waste, um, it's, you know, everything is in a double bag, biohazard bag. So there's several layers there, and, and we can certainly use the, the double glove to add an additional layer. Um, so we, that, that's, that's, uh, that's the PP that we ask our, our staff to use when we are handling bio waste. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I agree that you, you, we, we ask, uh, everyone to, to make sure that the, Biohazardous bags are are not overfilled. Uh, they, we don't want them to get too heavy. Uh, we we definitely want to uh, allow for steam to to uh, enter the the bag so it can sterilize the contents. I mean we 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 use training as well and to, to try to eliminate uh, the hazard of of, of, of exposure, and not just from a from a sharps perspective, but but um. Uh, biological exposure perspective as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, you know, it's all, all very important. And that's, um, you know, one of the unfortunate realities is that, you know, the, when we're, when we're working with potentially infectious materials, you know, or, or patients, you know, we're dealing with the potential for, you know, pathogens. And so within that, you know, the protection is very important. So as we talked about, you know, this whole this whole spectrum, we've got, you know, we've got certain limited yet yet opportunities for elimination. You know, we've got potentials for substitution and engineering controls with different devices and different features on the devices. And of course, we have administrative controls, you know, everything from neutral zones and uh, avoiding passing, avoiding recapping, watching out for rushing and fatigue and good communication. So all these things very important there. And then of course for the for the hazards that we, we can't do anything about, 
we get the PPE. You know what? That was PPE has always been the primary example I use when I talk about Ebola because if you have somebody that's working in a patient room with a with a Ebola patient, you know the the Ebola being primarily transferred through blood and body fluids. And they, they have to be right there up close and personal. You know, the, the main objective is just to keep the blood and body fluid off the employee. So the PPE is hugely important there, along with the administrative procedures for donning and doffing and hazardous waste containment and disposal. So very, very important stuff. And uh, like we said, you know, uh, y'all's input is just uh, outstanding. So we always have an open invitation if you'd like to come back and we can always talk more. I think we probably have enough. We can talk about a whole other episode just on this topic. But uh, with all that being said, um, either uh, Dr. Mitchell or Vicente, do you have anything you'd like to add before we, before we tie it up today? Um, I just have one one additional thing to add. This has been an outstanding discussion, and I'm, I'm so excited to have participated. Um, and one thing I, I wanted to mention, we, we did talk about it a little bit, but these, the downstream injuries, meaning the ones that are happening to non-users, the ones, and non-user, we mean it's not the person who is doing the injection or using the suture, is not only important for a profession like Vicente, like in the, in the biosafety environment or in the clinical lab, if we can reduce the sharps or protect the sharps at the point of use, we're not only protecting everybody downstream, we're also protecting people that didn't sign up for a risk like that, meaning environmental services, linen and laundry worker, maintenance, operations. We didn't even cover sharps that could be used by visitors, meaning in the restrooms, self-injecting with insulin, in, in, the, in the garbage in a restroom or in the public garbage or flush down the toilet. So really eliminating or protecting the sharp at the point of use can protect innumerable people downstream. And that really is incorporating the sense of public health into occupational health. And I don't want us to lose sight of what the implications are for people outside of healthcare for those devices that are used inside of healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, it brings to mind, and I won't I won't go too deep into this, of course, but we had a situation there several years ago. It was goodness, probably seven years ago now, but um, where a, a a patient had been admitted to the hospital, and they were in a in a patient care room. And for you know, unfortunate reality, of course, there's these different variables. This particular patient was was looking for narcotics and they were able to get the sharp disposal container off the wall and shake it until the engineering control the the container popped open and they were able to dump out all of these used used uh, devices on the ground and so of course at that point security came in and were able to take care of the situation but you still had all these sharps on the ground and so to your point then it became a question of, well, who's going to clean up all these exposed sharks, you know, all of which have been used. We have no idea who the source patients are at this point. Um, and so just something like that that happened within a five-minute span became a really big open hazard and a big risk. 
so yeah there's definitely a lot of people involved besides the besides the primary user of the of the device <clears throat> cool uh, Vicente any any last thoughts today and great great points uh, and uh, just one thing I, I don't know if we talked about it but I guess it falls under administrative controls just uh, uh, opting for safer sharps or, or sharps sharps alternatives that that's uh, something that's in the OSHA regulations and then to dr. Mitchell's point we, we need to think about uh, everybody not just the people in the facility and um, one of the one of the Things that I mentioned during training, and I, I sent reminders uh, several times a year, is uh, we, we've seen um, example. We, we've seen uh, sharps contaminated sharps discarded in a regular broken glass box because those are bigger. So we, we've had uh, cases where, uh, uh, for example, uh, a contaminated pipette is too big to fit in a sharps container. So uh, staff are supposed to contact me or their supervisor, and we we find a, a, a different solution for that. But uh, it's just so much easier for them to discard a contaminated item that is too big in a broken glass container because they're they're about four feet tall. Uh, but those go in the regular um, um, dumpster. So we 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 always uh, have to remind people to to um, Maybe chemical decontamination needs to be done first before disposing of these sharps in a broken glass container. So I created a flyer uh, just to to differentiate between between the two different types of containers, and I posted those uh, all around the lab. And I have seen um, an improvement in that area because we don't want to pass that hazard on to you know the the people that come and discard our our waste. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a it's one thing for them to you know deal with broken glass, but it's another thing to deal with biologically contaminated broken glass for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, it's always good to watch out for those hazards for sure. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, just a great conversation and great input. You know, definitely a lot of subject matter expertise there. So with all that being said, I know. Uh, of course, y'all are very busy. I don't want to tie up your whole day, so we'll, we'll tie it up today. But um, we'll definitely talk more soon. But for everybody else listening, uh, if you haven't if you haven't seen it yet, uh, definitely feel free to check out our excuse me the rest of our podcast. They're on the Anchor page, which is at Anchor.fm/assp-assp-assp. Or excuse me, Anchor.fm-assp-hcps-healthbeat, and we have uh, 17 episodes up now. We have all kinds of things ranging from needle safety, shark safety, bloodborne pathogens, body fluids, um, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and public health. We have ergonomics. We have um, goodness, just all kinds of topics. So definitely feel free to check that out. And then of course. Um, we have webinars coming up, so if you're not familiar with it, coming up in uh, October, we're going to be having a webinar about the COVID-19 Emergency Temporary Standard from OSHA, which is actually Dr. Mitchell will be presenting that. And then coming up in November, we'll be having a webinar about burnout syndrome and how to prevent that and mitigate it. So that'll be another great topic that's very relevant to healthcare safety. 
with all that being said, uh, feel free to get in touch. We're on the ASSP communities and we're also on LinkedIn. And we have a new Twitter feed, which is the at ASSP HCPS. So if you have anything, uh, any comments, concerns, any topics or resources you'd like to see, or if you'd like to get more involved with the practice specialty, please feel free to let us know. Otherwise, with that being said, we're going to sign off for today, but we will catch up with everybody real soon. Thank you all.